Well, good morning, Trinity. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's a pleasure to say good morning to you. Thank you for being here. It's a beautiful morning in Charlottesville. Y'all told me that it's hot in Charlottesville in the summer, and yesterday that was true. Uh, But I'm from Texas, and yesterday felt familiar. This morning could have been Christmas morning in in Houston, Texas. So (laughs) it is... uh, it's good that the heat breaks, and this week should be a little bit, a little bit nicer. Hey, uh, I'd love to meet you if you are new here, or if we haven't met yet, or if I've forgotten your name, and that's everybody. So I'll be, I'll be out back uh, after the service. Come say hi, and would love to, uh, love to get to know you. We are continuing and actually finishing today our uh, sermon series that we've been going through in this summer on the Psalms, and in particular the Psalms of Asaph. And just to give you a preview of where we're headed in August, next week's a very special service. Kelly Scott is going to be installed officially as our assistant pastor, and we're going to have the incredible privilege of hearing Dr. Ken Elzinga uh, bring a message from God's Word to us. Uh, that's worth coming. We may have to add some chairs next week for, for that gift. The two weeks after that, in the middle of August, I'm going to do a little bit of uh, work together with y'all, thinking about something of a vision, but really more of just a focus for this year ahead at Trinity as we think about the new ministry year. And then that last week of August, as UVA students come back, we'll begin our summer or our fall series, which will be in the book of Genesis. All that by way of introduction. Our psalm this morning is Psalm 80. I was talking to somebody before the service who, like me, had probably not paid much attention to this psalm. It's not a famous one, and yet I hope you'll find it, like me, extremely rich as we attend to it. Psalm 80. It's printed for you in your bulletin. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is God's word. Let me pray. Great God in heaven, we rejoice in thanksgiving 
and worship that you have called us here this morning by your word to hear that word proclaimed to us and to answer back in prayer and in praise. What a gift it is to be here. And what a gift it is that you have revealed yourself to us in this, your holy word. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't tell us about yourself. And you have done that in all of creation sufficient to render no one with excuse. And yet you have done it savingly in this special revelation of your word and ultimately in Jesus Christ. And God, we pray now that as we attend to your word, you would be with us. Your Holy Spirit, who breathed these words out through the psalmist, would be among us. That I would speak clearly and truly and boldly, and that all of us would see and treasure Christ our Lord. Bless us now, we pray. In his name, amen. So our series in the Psalms this summer has had something of a theme concerning our relationship with God. What does it look like for us to be in relationship with God? And the Psalms are hymns, songs given to us to sing to God within that relationship. And so we can learn a lot by looking at the Psalms about how that relationship is supposed to work. In more recent weeks, we've seen what happens when that relationship gets a little haywire, when things go wrong, whether because we see the prosperity of the wicked and wonder if God is really good to us, or because we don't feel it in our own hearts as we seek God. Our psalm this morning, the last psalm in this series, Psalm 80, is concerned with our relationship with God, but it helpfully moves us a little bit from thinking about ourselves and what it looks like for us to relate to God. And the focus of this psalm is really on how God relates to us. The big questions of this psalm relate to what does God think about me? Think about Israel. How does God relate to his people? And this key question that's in this psalm and that we wake up with consciously or unconsciously every day, which is this, when God looks at me, what's the expression on his face? When God looks at me, does he smile? Does he frown? Does he look quizzically wondering what's about to happen? How does God relate to me? How does God relate to you? How do we approach this God? Our psalm this morning finds Israel in a very difficult moment in its history and a very difficult moment in its relationship with God. That relationship is off and they're suffering the consequences. And the prayer of this psalm is ultimately a prayer for a restoration of that relationship so that they might benefit from the favor of God that they once knew. In it, we're going to learn a great deal about our relationship to God generally, but especially, and this is where I want us to end our time this morning, not only what Israel was experiencing in this moment of Psalm 80, but even more what we experience today, further down the line of God's redemptive history through Jesus Christ, who this psalm is about. That's where we're headed. Well, here's an outline for you note takers. We did some alliteration this morning. It was a special day. Uh, three points, the need, the negotiation, and the new way. The need, the negotiation, and the new way. So first, the need. As we, as we come to a psalm, and this is true anytime you open your Bible and read the psalms, and hopefully a lot of you use the psalms in your devotional life, 
we want to remember, first of all, this is poetry. This is artistic language. The words are used artistically for our benefit. Meaning is found in the way that the words are arranged. It's different than simply reading a narrative or reading an epistle that's teaching. There's art here. And a few things to notice. One is structure, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And the other is the imagery that's being used. And so in this first point, I want to think about both of those things. And the key image of this psalm, the controlling image of this psalm, is an, is an image of Israel as a vine. Israel as a vine in trouble. Verses 8 to 11 recount the major moments in Israel's history and do it in this reference to the vine, the exodus, the conquest, their flourishing in the promised land. Look at 8 to, to 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. That's the exodus. You drove out the nations and planted it. That's the conquest. You cleared the ground for it. It tipped deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. The height of the people of Israel was somewhere around the time of Solomon and David, his father. And this description is that time, a time when Israel had been taken as a vine and planted as a fruitful vine in the promised land. And it's borders were expanded, there was peace. But things have gone wrong, and we see that in this psalm. Continue reading. Why then, God, have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. All that move in the field feed on it. Then jumping down to verse 16, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. The status of Israel is summarized in verses 5 and six, they feed on tears, they drink tears, their neighbors are their enemies, and their enemies laugh at them. All this forms the dominant imagery of this psalm. The most likely historical moment this is referring to is the Assyrian invasion of Israel in the 8th century BC. It's not terribly important for us to understand the psalm, but I'll just mention it here. Um, Assyria was a, a major kingdom. The kingdom of Israel had been divided into two. The northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria, a boar ravaging the vine, and ultimately they're destroyed and carried away. Judah is threatened, but they remain until Babylon comes a little later and takes them out. In the Septuagint, there's actually a heading to Psalm 80 that references Assyria, which is part of why we think that's the reference here. There's other stuff too that we, you can ask me about afterwards. So, Israel, once blessed, once fruitful in the land, once flourishing, now the walls are broken down, there's a boar ravaging the vine. Things are not going well. There are tears. That's the image. The structural piece of this psalm that's worth noticing is this repeated refrain that hopefully you can see in your Bible or in your bulletin in verses 3, 7, and 19. We sing worship songs, and oftentimes they have a chorus, and that's the same idea going on here in the Psalms. When you see repeated lines in a psalm, pay attention. The psalmist is trying to get our attention, trying to help us understand the meaning. And these refrains in verses 3, 7, and 19 give us the core of Israel's prayer. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then that name of God expands. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
Things are going very poorly for Israel. And their prayer to God is that God would let his face shine. Y'all see that? That's pretty simple. That's just reading. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean for God's face to shine on us? Now, some of y'all may hear a very important echo of the ironic benediction from Numbers chapter 6, where God speaks to Moses and tells Moses to tell Aaron to tell the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This expression, letting the face of God shine, is found throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. And they all, all of its meaning has a similar sense, and this is what I want us to recognize here. God's face shining on the people of Israel, the thing they're asking for in this psalm, is for God to look in favor upon them, okay? Some less literal translations of Psalm 80 actually translate this as, may God smile on you. That's not what the Hebrew exactly says, but that is the meaning of the Hebrew. Israel says, smile on us again, God. We need you to smile on us. The mighty armies of Assyria are ravaging their land, and they pray, shine your face on us. I want to think about why. why. Why does Israel pray for the favor of God in this moment? And the psalmist here is right to do that, and I want us to see why. And there's kind of two reasons. The first is that the psalmist recognizes and says here that the Assyrian invasion of Israel was God's judgment on Israel for its idolatry and apostasy and sin. Look at verse 4. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? The present situation is not just of some foreign army invading, but of God being angry with them. And the word here that's used, that's translated angry, is actually the word smoke. And so there's this beautiful juxtaposition of God's face shining clearly like the sun is right now, right? On the one hand, that's what they want. But what they have right now is this dark smokeness of God, this smokeness, this darkness and smoke of God's anger and wrath. Y'all see that? How long are you going to smoke? We want to see your face shine upon us. The psalmist recognizes that Israel is in this situation because they've lost the favor of God. This also fits with what Israel should have known about their stay in the promised land. Psalm 44 has very similar language, and I want to read it because it's helpful. Um, oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. That agricultural image, you see that? You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm save them, but by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Israel recognized that their happy stay in the promised land was related to the shining light of God's face. Now they have the anger, God shine your face. Okay, that's, that's why the psalmist prays for this. Because God's blessing, his favor, his face shining is the thing they've been missing. And they're suffering the consequences. All right. I don't think that was very profound, but it, it's important and helpful for us to understand the rest of the psalm. All right, you with me so far? That's what Israel wants. They could have asked for all the armies to be defeated. That's what they ultimately want. But what they need 
is for God to stop being angry with them and to shine his face in favor on them. All right. So second point, the negotiation. The stanza in verses 14 to 18 gives us an expanded view, really, of that core prayer. And that expanded view helps us understand a really important relational dynamic that's being implicated by this moment in history. First, look at verses 14 and 18 in isolation. Just that first line, first line of verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. And then verse 18. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. This prayer, restore us, that gets repeated three times. The word restore there is actually turn. So, so the whole prayer is about turning. Turn us, God, right? Return us to blessing. And here, he flips it and says, God, turn to us. And we won't turn from you. This recognizes the relational challenge for the people of Israel. God's turning away is his anger. Y'all see that connection? And his turning to them is his shining face. Israel had turned away from God in their sin, and God had turned away from them in judgment. And now, as they come to Israel asking for his blessing, they're asking for a redo, right? They come with a promise of sorts, a negotiation of sorts, saying, turn again, God, and this time we won't turn back from you like we have. And this promised faithfulness is fundamental to the stability of that relationship for Israel. They recognize, just like in friendships or in marriage or in sibling dynamics, kids, when y'all, when you get mad at your siblings, do you ever, um, do you ever apologize to them, hopefully, right? And then what do they say? They say they're mad, right? But you say, no, I, pr- I won't do it again right? Please just be nice to me. Please like me. I won't do it again. And that restores the relationship, right? You're, you're back to the place where there's favor and, and favor, and, and we're happy again. That's what Israel recognizes here in the psalm that they need. And as we see again and again and again through Israel's history, that need for stability is answered by profound instability because Israel again and again and again and again, when God turns graciously to them, they wander off and turn away again. Cycle again, again, again. Okay. This psalm, then, is, what's it teaching us? And this is a decisive moment in the sermon. And as you're reading this psalm, it's a decisive moment for you and your, and your quiet time at home. What do we learn in here? Is this psalm teaching us to cry out to God for favor. Is that the main point of, of this message? Y'all need to learn to cry out to God for favor. Just tell him to shine his face on you when you're in suffering. That's a very tempting answer. And your smarty pants preacher almost preached that sermon a bunch of times and kept running into a wall and then I think maybe figured it out. All right? No, that's sort of right, but not really. Because this tension keeps coming up. Which is that as we seek God's favor, the question comes to our mind, okay, well, God, are you happy with me? And we, the, the truth is we don't need to be taught to pray this way, the way that Israel's praying, because it's how we naturally pray. How many of you have recently tried to make a bargain with God in some way or another, right? We come to God, right? it's been a while, 
we get on our knees, we say, God, I need your help right now. And I recognize we haven't talked in a while, and I recognize that this sin is going on in my life. Um, I need your favor, and I need you. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you now forever, right? We, we make these negotiations with God. Maybe they're smaller than that. That's a pretty bold, big thing, right? But we, we, we think that our faithfulness in some way, big or small, will result in God's favor to us in some way, big or small. This is in many ways our default approach to God. We, we need his favor and we, and we recognize our own sin and, and the fact that we deserve disfavor. And so we do this dance. It's important here to underline that that instinct that we have is actually not wrong. For God to show favor to us, we need to have earned it in some way. We need to have merit for our blessing. But the point of this psalm is that that comes from somewhere else. That's what I want us to see this morning. This is not the end of the story in Psalm 80. The Assyrians ended up carrying away the northern kingdom, but that was not the end of God's story for his people, and it's not the end of our story for ourselves. And so, final point, the new way. Beginning here, and between the bargaining of verses 14 and 18, in this stanza, we see the the prayer is expanded um, with some specific requests that God uh, puts into the psalmist's lips and that massively expands our understanding of this psalm. Let's read it again. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that you have planted, that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. The psalmist here takes the vine imagery. He's still working with it, but then he connects it to the imagery of the sun. Y'all see that? The stock your right hand planted, and for the sun whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, here we get to do some biblical scholarship, all right? And this is a bit of a riddle that scholars actually do struggle with when they look at Psalm 80. And some of y'all know where this is going. It's about Jesus. Uh, but, But listen, for us to really understand how it's about Jesus, it's worth thinking about the difficulty of interpreting this little stanza in Scripture. All right, so stick with me. This is the hard part of the sermon for just a minute. Maybe, I don't know. Um... So there's three ways to read this. The first, these build on each other. The first is to say, this is Israel. This is all Israel. The son of man is Israel. The son of the right hand is Israel. That's what this is about. That's, that's not unusual in the Old Testament. Israel is referred to as the son of God. And so we would read this then in that case as a fairly simple continuation of the ideas that are going on, right? God, the vine's in trouble, it needs your help. The sun's in trouble, it needs your help. Turn to us in favor, give us strength, and we'll be saved. Y'all tracking there? Just about Israel. That's, that's option one. It is about Israel, but there's more. Second reading that recognizes some of the biblical theological themes of the Old Testament would recognize that this language about the son of man and a son that's made strong and the man of the right hand this language is connected to the kingship 
especially to David, to the monarchy. You say, okay, well, why is that coming into Psalm 80? What about Israel? Because it does seem like it's the same thing that the vine is, if you read the text closely. Well, the answer is, is actually really important for us to understand the Old Testament, because increasingly, as the monarchy arises, the kingship, the king, begins to stand in for Israel. The king's goodness or the king's wickedness results in Israel's blessing or Israel's cursing. That's, that's actually part of the design that Israel was looking for in a king. They said, we need a hero, we need a champion, we need someone to stand in for us, and there's a great mercy in that from God. So, second reading, this is about Israel, yes, but it's also about the king. And the king stands in for Israel sometimes. And that goes back and forth in the Old Testament. Okay, that then takes us to the third and fullest reading, which is that this is a prayer not just for David in general or some general successor king of David, but for the Messiah, for the one who fulfills this psalm for Jesus Christ himself. You, if you've read the Gospels a bunch, and it's fine if you haven't, you'll know that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man a lot. And that's a whole field of scholarship too. What does he mean by that? The Son of Man brings us back to Psalm 80. It brings us back to Daniel chapter 6. It brings us back to Psalm 8. And in adopting that language for himself... He's saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King. One place this is really clear, and the connection to Psalm 80 is really clear, is in Jesus, in Matthew 26, Jesus comes before Caiaphas on his way to the cross, okay? And he says this in verse 64 of Matthew 26. Remember Psalm 80, if you got it in your head. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on clouds from heaven. Remember verse 17? But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Jesus is telling us, and he's telling Caiaphas, that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 80. That Psalm 80, this prayer, was about him. And Jesus doesn't just claim to be the son of man in Psalm 80. He does do that. But do you remember what else he says that connects to Psalm 80? And this is, this is really cool. I, I, well, never mind, I'll say it later. Um, the vine. Anybody remember in John chapter 15? Jesus says at the Last Supper, I am the true vine. And what he's saying, that has a lot to do with our union with Christ, right? That's really important. Whoever abides in me has blessing. But he's saying, I am the true Israel. That's the deepest meaning of John 15 verse 1. I am the vine that Psalm 80 is about. I am faithful Israel. The blessings are for me. And we become heirs and bear fruit to that blessing, not by being the vine, but by being the branches that are attached to Christ. Through our union with him, the true and faithful vine, we receive God's favor and blessing. He's the king. He's the vine. He is faithful Israel in Psalm chapter 80. God turns to you if you're a believer, and he offers to turn to you if you are not yet. And he shines on you in and through Jesus Christ. It is done. 
He has come. He has been the vine. He has been the son of man. We could go much further and talk about the light of the world and the good shepherd, which is also in this psalm. We're not going to do that. What does that mean for you and me? And this is where we're going to land the plane. How does that change our approach to Psalm 80? God's smile is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. For you to have blessing, you need the favor of God. You need God's face to shine upon you. Psalm 80 gets that right. Your conscience gets that right. Your instinct to negotiate for God's favor is actually getting that piece of this right. But the way that you get God's favor, the way that you get the shining face of God is not by promising to never turn again, but by making the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, your King, by acknowledging Him as the vine and grafting into Him in your union. If you are here this morning and you aren't sure of the favor of God, this is how you get it. This offer is held out freely to you. God will smile upon you, not because you're so special, but because Christ has done it all. He has been the faithful one, the faithful vine who never turns from God. And for those of us in this room who have received Jesus, guys, we need to know this. And this is day-to-day important for you in your life as you approach the trials and difficulties of this world and as you approach God. You have the favor of God if you are in Jesus Christ. You do not need to ask God for his favor. It is yours. Definitively, it can't be taken away from you because you are in Christ Christ is the true vine. He has been faithful. He is the king who stands in your place. You have the favor. And that's really good news. But it's really hard to remember. Because we wake up trying to get that. Trying to earn that. Trying to negotiate our way to something. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 80 isn't here as a model for us to ask God's favor boldly. Psalm 80 is here as a signpost to the favor that we have in Jesus Christ. Stop negotiating with God. Abide in Christ. Abide in the vine. Rejoice in the favor that is yours. The smile of God is yours. I'll close just here with a word on suffering because that's what the psalm is about. Israel in Psalm 80 rightly understood that their suffering was downstream of God's disfavor, which was downstream of their disobedience. They got that right. You, in Christ, will still suffer. But that's not the formula anymore. That's not true when you suffer. You have favor in Jesus Christ. Our circumstances are not a reliable guide to God's favor upon you. Quite the contrary, the gospel being true, Christ being the true vine, helps us to understand that as we walk through suffering, we don't walk through suffering begging for God to have favor on us to deliver us from that suffering, but we walk through suffering in the favor of God. 
Brothers and sisters, some of you are suffering massively right now. You have the favor of God. Some of you wake up every morning suffering in little small ways. You have the favor of God. Which turns our trials, which turns our suffering not into a judgment on us, but into one of two things. Sometimes it's the fatherly discipline of the Lord that we read about in Hebrews 12. That God shines on us by forming us more in his image through the trials that we experience. But even more, we see that God looks down with delight on his son when he was on this earth, walking through suffering in this world, bearing the cross, and God rejoiced that this favor is on you and me. He smiles on you and me as we follow in the way of his son. We do that resting in his smile. Christians suffer, which is all of us. God shines on you. His favor is yours if you are in Christ. If that's not yours yet, receive it. If it is, rest in it and rejoice at the privilege of walking in the way of your Savior. Secure and the favor that he has earned for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your holy word. We thank you that you call us to this remarkable place where we know and can enjoy your smile, where we need not negotiate with you, where we need not perform for your good favor, but that we have it in Jesus. And Lord, we do pray that we would be strengthened by that favor to walk the way of Jesus in this world that killed him and that will call us into his way. Strengthen us for those trials. Let us know your love and your smile as we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.